Well, this morning is Sunday, May 29th, the day before Memorial Day. Our topic this morning is war. And war this morning is going to, yeah. Edwin Starr will come into the message, I promise. Uh, war in this sense is going to be in an acronym. Y'all know what an acronym is? Kind of like NASA, it's letters that stand for words and it means something bigger. Ichthus is the same thing, the little fish you have on your cars. Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. His Greek letters mean that. I'll tell you what the acronym is later. But the reason that I got on the topic of war is obviously, right now, people are honoring or preparing to honor. Mostly people are just barbecuing, but it's supposed to be a day where we honor all of those that have served in the military. And... When I began to think about the military, and, and I imagine pastors all over the United States today are preaching about the cost of freedom and sacrifice and all kind of beautiful patriotic themes, my heart tended towards a more spiritual aspect. Now, I don't want to diminish today uh, the beautiful sacrifice that soldiers have made. I mean, Jesus, when he met with soldiers, said, hey, don't extort people. But he never told them not to be soldiers. You know, we have this idea sometimes, and the Mennonites have run away with it, that as a Christian you have to be a pacifist. Not true. If you're a Christian soldier, you just be a good soldier. If you're a Christian salesman, be a good salesman. If you're a Christian mortician or beautician or whatever it is, you'd be good at what you do and work as unto the Lord. You do your job well. But there is another kind of soldier in another kingdom. Jesus never denied that He had a kingdom. He never denied that He had soldiers. He simply said it was not of this world or people would fight. And uh, I want to cover that idea today. Israel was the original prince with God. Israel is where we find our foundations for the kind of warfare that we're supposed to participate in. The way that we're supposed to be organized. The attitude that we're supposed to have. So your title this morning is War. It's an acronym and we're going to start with Israel. But here recently, on the website, people have been asking, what is the purpose of life? The last few Wednesdays, we've dealt with this topic. Uh, you know that Corinthians 15.28 covers the general purpose of God. And I taught on that a few, few weeks ago. I want to tell you that it is evident from the Bible that there was some kind of rebellion before man ever got put on this planet. That's provable, but I don't intend to prove it this morning. I'm just telling you that that's the case. God then took mankind and placed him upon an earth. It is true that man fell and that the Bible is the story of man's fall and redemption back to God. But the other thing, the larger purpose in the Bible, has to do with God using mankind to put down a rebellion that predates us. See, there is a larger story within the Bible that ends with God being all in all. God authority perfectly flowing from Him right down to the smallest detail of His creation. And He's using mankind to do it, but who is the head of the human race? And He also happens to be God. So God has appointed one man that He is filled with Himself, filled with His presence to the fullest extent. And through that one man, He's reconciling everything in heaven and on earth to Himself. Hey, guys. Come on in. Judas, scoot over, buddy. So through this one man, the rebellion that has existed from before man got here, God is putting down. This is why Corinthians 15.28 says, When everything has been made subject to Him, the Son then will turn and present the kingdom back to the Father. Are you all pretty clear with me on that? Okay, so there's a war that has been raging long before man was ever here. This is why there was a tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden. It's why there was the knowledge of death. It's why you needed a tree of life. All of those things before man got here. So if there was a rebellion in the universe that is being squelched by God and man is the entity which God is using to put down the rebellion, then we have a role to play. And the Bible likens it unto soldiers. Not all that unlike going to put down a rebellion anywhere. Turn with me to Exodus 12. It's cold in here, isn't it? 
Nice. It's good to have an air conditioner. In Exodus 12, starting in verse 37, you hear something said that gives you a, a hint. Yeah, this is page 75. It says, The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. There, there were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. And many other people went up with them, as well as large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough they had brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread, though the dough was without yeast, because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare the food for themselves. Now, the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, to the very day, all of the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Divisions, division can mean all kinds of things. But divisions in a military sense is the way that an army is organized. It's interesting that when God called Israel out of Egypt, we don't have all of the details. I mean, we don't have it down to the extent of each household packed these items and assembled in this place and left. But the Lord tells us that they left in divisions. When you look into this Hebrew word, it means divisions in the sense of a military divide. In armies, there's often a vanguard. Anybody know what a vanguard is? This is your front line. There's a rear guard. There's left and right flanks. Israel marched out of Egypt in military fashion. God is a God of order and not a God of chaos. You might think that if you had to get together 600,000 men and all of the women and all of the children and everything, what you would have would be a mob. But when God does things, it's well organized. In fact, we find out from the Scripture that there were captains of 50 men, captains of 100 men, captains of 1,000 men. And there were 12 divisions, larger divisions, in Israel, according to their tribes. You find out even according to these divisions, that since you have 12, there were three placed in the front, three placed in the rear, three placed on the left, and three placed on the right. you know what was in the center? The Ark of God. Among the armies of God, among God's prince, and prince is not just a title of royalty, it's also a military title, especially in the Orient. To be a prince meant that you commanded something. The prince of God, Israel, had in it the presence of God. The only time the ark was not in the center of the divisions of Israel, do you know when that was? There were a few occasions where God wanted the ark to be out in front so that it was clear to everybody who the divisions of Israel were led by. We can learn from this as Christians. If your role in life, if your purpose in life is to worship God, and that's great, and we've talked about that. It is to have an abundant life, and we've talked about that, and that's wonderful. But if your larger purpose in life is to be a part of God's ruling force that is putting down a rebellion in the universe, then we need to learn what the Bible says about us as soldiers on this memorial day. All of us are in a battle whether we want to be or not. Bob Dylan said during his few Christian years that you have to serve somebody. He sang about a socialite with a long string of pearls. And he said, you're going to have to serve somebody. His point that he was trying to make is everybody is on one side or another. The earth is divided into a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. That very thought makes us uncomfortable. Because you don't want to acknowledge that so-and-so, who's a really nice person, the Bible says if they're not filled with the Spirit of God, in Ephesians 2 it says they're filled with the spirit of disobedience. Everybody is placed into one kingdom or another. How did Jesus say? If you're not for me, then you're against me. Jesus is the dividing line. Those that are led by Jesus and His Spirit are in the kingdom of light. Those that are not are not in that kingdom and there's only one other. This is why the creation starts with darkness and God introduced light. And He divides the light from the darkness, calling one day and the other night. The Bible calls you children of the day. So to back up and get the larger perspective here, there was a problem in the creation before man ever got here. A big one. A problem that involved death, a knowledge of good and evil, and some kind of rebellion. Man was instituted on the planet. And what does man look like? God. Man looks just like God. So these are God's little representatives, God's soldiers. But they fell from the 
estate to which we were placed in. We fell from God's grace, God's divine direction, because we chose to move against God's leading. So God appointed one man, Jesus, that we call the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, as the agent by which He would restore all mankind first, and then the universe to Himself. Israel teaches us about this because Israel had divisions. Turn with me to Exodus 13. Just should be one page over. Not only did Israel come out of Egypt in their divisions, each ranked in an order and in a fashion, but you find out, look at verse 17. This is page 76 in the Thompson chain. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road to the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road towards the sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Not only on the day that this nation came into being, this nation left another nation, were they perfectly ordered. And the Bible goes through great detail in many passages to tell you how they were ordered. On that note, by the way, if you have a vanguard and a rear guard and a left flank and a right flank and something in the middle, from the air, what might that look like? A cross. Isn't that interesting? Ephesians teaches us that everything that we do on earth in this human drama, if you will, this human play, is to teach something to the heavenly realms. Did you ever think of yourself as a teacher of angels and spiritual principalities? The Bible says that God is using your life to teach about God's many-sided wisdom to the heavenly powers. Why do you think that might be? Because in the heavenlies, a rebellion occurred sometime before man ever got here. And God is using us as an object lesson. So He put us in divisions. The divisions even look like a cross with God right in the center. And then Exodus 13, verse 18, tells us that when Israel came out of Egypt, they came out fully armed for battle. Now, two things you need to know about this. One is, though a Christian is armed for battle the day he's born again, because the Spirit of God is in you, equipping you to love the unlovable, equipping you to show kindness beyond what normal humans would do, to be selfless, to lay down your very life, He won't allow you to face war before you're ready for it. God's a compassionate general. He didn't take His brand new troops right into heavy battle. Instead, He took them around the road where they could learn to stay in step with Him. You remember we were talking about a master sergeant earlier during worship? What the master sergeant really do? Yeah, he gets everybody. I don't know what you call that. Pop, you might remember. Have everybody line up. They get informed. And then as people march out according to their divisions, there's a cadence even to help people stay in step to make sure that there's perfect unity. Well, God is that kind of general. He put them in divisions as He was leading them out. He led them with an angel, a a pillar of fire and a cloud that went before them. And He took them in a route where they would not face battle until they were used to staying in step with Him, though they were armed for it. All of this ought to show us about a Christian's life. We're being led by the very presence of God. It's both before you and within you. We're being organized into battalions, if you will. These are your churches. Directed by the Spirit with captains of 50, 100, and 1,000 over you. Apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, evangelists, helping you stay in step, get right. Remember I told you war wasn't an acronym? Well, I'll tell you what that an acronym is in a little bit. Let me teach you, though, about how you get in to the army. See, some of you in here went through a time period in this country where conscription was a bad word. I mean, burned draft cards, ran to Canada, joined the army, found any way people in this country did to get out of the army. God's army is entirely volunteer. Turn with me to Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We're going to be in Deuteronomy 20. Aren't you glad that if you're going to be a part of God's army, you don't have to be? 
We don't serve the kind of king that says, go to war whether you want to go or not. We don't serve in a kingdom where you're serving next to a soldier that might shoot you in the back because he does not want to be there. Or one that might face battle and turn and run away, leaving you exposed. In fact, if Israel is our type, they came out in divisions, they came out armed for battle, and listen to the rules for going to war. On page 217, starting in the 20th chapter, first verse, when you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them, because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. When you are about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. He shall say, Hear, O Israel, today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not be terrified or give way to panic before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. The officer shall say to the army, Has anyone built a new house and not dedicated it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else may dedicate it. Has anyone planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else enjoy it. Has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else marry her. Then the officer shall add, Is any man afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home so that his brothers will not become disheartened too. When the officers have finished speaking to the army, they shall appoint commanders over it. Say, Eric, why on earth are you reading those long nine verses and what does that have to do with anything? The attitude of God's conscription is God desires that all men everywhere would join the kingdom of light. The indication in Israel is that the priest is standing forth telling everybody there's no reason to be scared. There's no reason to be faint-hearted. All of you can come join the army. But then he appoints commanders to tell them, if you built a house and you're worried about your house, go home. If you have a wife and you love this wife so much that you're concerned about that, go home. It says, if you've planted a vineyard, you haven't got to drink any of the wine from the grapes, go home. If you're scared, go home. The call goes out to all of mankind. But it's only those that are wholeheartedly committed without a single other thing that is between them and God, without any other thing taking precedence over them doing God's will that actually go into battle. This is why Matthew 10 says things like, If you love your mother, brother, sister, daughter, son more than me, you're not worthy of me. Now, one stated in a negative fashion and the other's not. That's because this is a type and then a shadow. The attitude of God is, I'm inviting everyone to be a part of the kingdom of life. Everyone to be obedient. If there's anything else in your life that is going to take precedence over me, don't come. Isn't that interesting? Now, in a natural sense, this was really an act of mercy. Everybody in Israel who was over 20 years old, isn't that interesting, 20? In Israel, if you were 20, you were considered a man. doesn't matter whether uh, mom and dad didn't think you were old enough to have your own house yet, whether you hadn't completed college yet, or whether you would just still like to be on mom and dad's payroll. In Israel, if you were 20, it was time to go to battle. If one of these other conditions precluded you from going to battle, then they decided that you weren't worthy of the army. Go home. Come back when you were ready. The kingdom's much the same way. God is looking for men and women who will stand with Him despite the consequence or cost. Who will stand with Him in a wholehearted, committed fashion. Let's volunteer. You know, I, uh, I met a man that told me that somebody said, I know, I know, you're going to try to convince me now that I should be a Christian, follow Jesus. He said, no, you don't understand. My compulsion is to preach the gospel. I have no particular compulsion about whether or not you accept it. <laughs> I thought that was funny, and that's not quite my heart. It's not quite my attitude. But the priest stood up before Israel and said, Hey guys, this is what God would like to accomplish. This is what we're going to do. And then the commanders came and said, 
If something's keeping you from being able to do that, go home. We don't need you. God's army success is not dependent upon the number of people in it. It's dependent upon the level of commitment of the people that are in it. God takes a remnant. He takes a few and overcomes a majority. He did it all through the Bible. But the requirement was that the remnant, the few that were there, be wholeheartedly committed. This is why the Bible says one can chase a thousand and two ten thousand. If one could chase a thousand, what would you say two could chase? Two thousand, right? But this, this power that God pours within us grows exponentially as each person is committed. This is why there's story after story in the Bible like David facing a larger foe like Goliath. This is why three men will stand, one defends a field and strikes down thousands of people. That's why these stories are in the Bible. There is no circumstance that the devil can put you in that God cannot overcome with just you. But if you can find one brother who will stand with you wholeheartedly committed to the cause, not caring at all about his own life, his own needs, his vineyard, his house, his wife, but caring about God's will being done, then you can surely overcome ten times as much. That's the kind of attitude that the Bible teaches. Christians are described as soldiers. In the New Testament, Christians are described as soldiers over and over and over. Well, how is that? I'm a Christian. I don't carry a gun. I'm a Christian. I don't have a draft card. I'm a Christian and I don't get paid as a soldier. Jesus taught about His kingdom and His kingdom advancing on earth. And we're going to look at some of that today. But this kingdom operates on different principles. And as we look at these Scriptures, the military is a good idea. It's a good principle. It's a pattern that you can look at and see that in some ways it reflects the heavenlies. But our kingdom is different. It operates on different principles. In a natural army, the goal is to kill the guy that is across from you, right? I listened to Donald Rumsfeld one time answering questions from a reporter. And I don't know why I like that guy, but I, I do. And if your politics lean towards different sides than me, I, I'm not voting for him for president. I just liked his attitude. He's not running for president. The reporter says, what was the point of that engagement? He said to go in and uh, kill the bad guys, which I thought was an incredibly simplistic answer, and the reporter did too. He said, yes, but what was the strategic point of the mission? He said, to eliminate all of the bad guys. And the reporter says, yes. And I couldn't believe it. You know, he's asking this question again. He's already got the answer twice. He said, yes, but what was the point of the mission? He said, to make them dead. <laughs> you know, I, I thought, well said, Donald. That is the object of a natural army. The army you've joined requires you to die to your own desires and to love the enemy. It's almost exactly opposite principles. The way that this army advances is not in killing someone. It is in loving them so that they will see something in you that makes them want to die to their own desires, their own plan for life, and take up God's. We operate on different principles. John the Baptist, did he ever kill anybody? No. What is John the Baptist most known for? All the miracles he did? No, he didn't do any miracles, did he? What is John the Baptist most known for? Turning a nation's hearts back to the Father. He stood and the man preached a gospel that was simply turn from your ways, your desires, your will, and consider God's. That prepared the whole world to receive the one human being, Jesus, the Messiah, who would begin to reconcile all of the world and the heavenlies too. He preached a gospel that taught people to die to self, repent, and follow the leader, Jesus. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 10. Paul speaks about warfare. He speaks about his armor. 2 Corinthians is in the New Testament. The 10th chapter of 2 Corinthians is on page 1288. I promised Cassidy that Edwin Starr would come into this message somewhere. Y'all remember the song he sang, War, What Is It Good For? If you don't remember him singing it, you remember Jackie Chan in that movie singing it and Chris Tucker, right? 
Does anybody remember any of the lyrics to that song? Oh, yeah. Well, that, that we got absolutely nothing. It's only friend is the undertaker. It talks about maiming people. It talks about all the, the devastation of war. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus said, The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come that you might have life and life to the fullest or to the abundant. We are at war with a heavenly power, not an earthly power. Remember, there was a problem that pre-existed man here. There was a problem here before human beings ever got on the earth. Your, your battle is not with flesh and blood, the Bible teaches. It is with rulers of the dark heavenly realms. See, we're tempted because you're looking at somebody that is not being nice to you to think that that's where your battle lies. No, that was never the problem. There was a problem here before human beings ever got here. God's conscription, His drafting, His calling out. The word church, and y'all, I know a lot of you have heard this, the nauseam, is ecclesia. It means the drafting, the calling out of God's army. We're in a time period where the commanders are saying, guys... God wants to accomplish something. He wants to accomplish something great and He desires that all of you would be saved, that all of you would participate in this. But, if you don't want to, you don't have to. That's the time period we're in now. We're building the ruling force of God. But the enemy, the thief who comes to steal from you, to kill and to destroy, is waging war on us all of the time. And it's our job to wage war on Him. With that in mind, look at 2 Corinthians 10. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold went away. He's being sarcastic. That's what he was being accused of in the Corinthian church. Ah, the guy writes weighty and impressive letters, but when you get here, you'll see he's just as meek and as gentle as could be. Isn't that a carnal thought? See, because Christians are often meek in general, because we're supposed to be, we're like Jesus, does that mean we're without power? Does that mean that we're without strength? Who's stronger, the man that gives in to his desires like an animal or the man with self-control that restrains himself and places God's will above his own desires? I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. Standards. Anybody, can you think of something that is a standard in a military sense? What are the standards? The Roman legions had them. Standards was the emblem of your particular legion that went before you and it was carried for everybody to see. The world has its own standards. It has its own code. Its own... Y'all never been in a military setting and seen that each platoon has its own emblem, its own logo? I've got pictures of some of the battalions in Israel that I got to go see. They had skull and crossbones and all kind of things that were supposed to be intimidating, right? The world has its own standards, but we don't live by those standards. We have a different standard. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, these weapons, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The world has its standards, its marching orders that goes before the world. These princes that have been disobedient, these heavenly realm powers that have been disobedient have people marching according to their standards without even realizing it. Let me give you some axioms that come from the world. Get them before they get you. Right? Do unto your brother before he does unto you. He with the gold makes all the rules. Uh, Y'all heard these kind of axioms, right? The Bible speaks in just the opposite fashion. We are in two armies, one of darkness, one of light, that are directly opposed to each other, both in philosophy and in practice. They teach hurt before they hurt you. We teach if he hurts you, turn the other cheek. Give that to him also. Love your enemies. He wants you to go a mile, go two with him. 
If he wants your shirt, give him your cloak as well. Do whatever it takes to show him the extent of Christ's love. That's what the Bible teaches us. We have two different standards. Paul says these are like weapons. They're in our right hand and our left. We have the power to demolish strongholds, arguments and pretensions. What fuels an argument? Brad, I know you've never been in an argument. So if Brad and I are in an argument, what fuels this argument? A pretension is a claim as to who's right. And if neither one of us will yield to the other, if neither one of us will esteem the other's needs higher than our own, if neither one of us will die to our own desires and be willing to be wronged for the sake of Jesus, this argument is fueled. I'm right. No, I'm right. You two little kids will do that all day long. All day long. That's the standard of this world. But Paul said it's like a weapon that we have in the right hand and the left. We can demolish that. How does a Christian demolish it? A kind word turns away wrath. Not just that, but how about if I say, you know, Brad, I gave up the right to be right when I became a Christian. And I'm sorry, brother. I'm sorry for entering into this argument with you. You believe what you do, and I believe what I do, and God will show us who's right. Let's not fight about it. Can't we make peace? The Bible says about that idea, if you're at the altar, if you've come here to pray, you want to commune with your general, and you realize that you've got something against somebody or they against you, go get that right first. See, we march to a different standard. And that's like having weapons in your right hand and your left, Paul said. We're going to keep turning to the right. I put these in scriptural order for you today. Turn to Ephesians. So you'll turn to your right, you'll pass up Galatians. You're going to be in Ephesians 6. Listen to how Ephesians says this. Starting in verse 10. This is on page 1302. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. You remember in worship today? That's in worship I quoted out of Joel. What was that quote? Let the weakling say... I am strong. How can a weakling say, I am strong? Why would the Bible tell you if you're a weakling, stand up and be strong? Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. I'm not suggesting that within any of us just naturally resides all of these principles. The standard that we're marching to is the same one that Israel did. Having the ark or the presence of God within you and before you leading you and helping to empower you. Everything that we're going to talk about today as far as warfare has to do with God's strength working in you. And I've shared this story a bunch and I apologize for doing that, but it's just such a good one. Corey Timboom, preaching in Germany after World War II, said that the moment she felt closest to God ever was when she saw one of her Nazi captors who had abused she and her sister who had stood before him naked, and she remembered seeing her sister was so skinny, so weak and emaciated, that when this guy jabbed at her with a stick, uh, like a baton, that you could see her ribs clearly uh, through, through the skin. That was the image that came to her mind the moment this guy stepped out in an aisle in a church where she was preaching and came to speak with her. He said, Fraulein, I know that God forgives me. Oh, would that be hard to hear? Would that be like pouring salt in a wound? I know that God forgives me, but I need to know that you forgive me. She said everything in her body screamed, no. <laughs> and can you blame her? But out of her mouth, because the ark of God, the presence of God, had gone before her, was leading her into that place and everywhere she went, and was also within her, out of her mouth came, I forgive you. She said she felt closer to God at that moment than any other moment in her entire life. Why might that be? Because all of the Lord's mighty strength was working in her to do something that she could not do on her own. What she did was awesome, but it's what God's done for each one of us. We were enemies of God. We cared about our own will and not His for years and years in your life. And He forgave you and took you not just to be in His army. But the Bible teaches He sat you at His table as one of the sons, making daily provision for you. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but, or rather, against rulers 
against authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm. Then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for all of the saints. He said, guys, you need to focus on who your battle is actually with. It's with the spiritual powers in the heavenly realms. He said, and you need to be prepared with armor for this warfare. And what was the armor? He likened it unto a natural army. He just listed everything that a Roman soldier wore. But he told you that it was, he said, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He's not talking about armor. He's talking about the attributes of a Christian. He's talking about clothing yourself with Christ. Israel came out of Egypt fully armed for battle. Christians are born fully armed for battle. The day you were born again, I've heard people my whole Christian walk pray to have the belt of truth. Pray to have the sword of the... You got it the day you were born. You know why? The Lord's strength is working within you. His divine power, His Spirit is within you. You have access to every one of these things. You know what you need to do? Realize you have them and learn to use them. How exactly does a breastplate of righteousness work? You know, we know how a breastplate worked for a Roman that Paul was uh, speaking about. It's made of metal or in, in many cases some kind of boiled leather that had been shaped to fit the soldier. And what's it for? It protects you. Things bounce off of it, right? Well, what would a breastplate of righteousness do for you? It protects you. Things bounce off. A funny story. A time I did not deserve the armor that I wore. I was working at Shell Norco and I had a boss that was fairly abusive to me. He, uh, because I was a Christian, because I was meek and gentle, and he was a tiny little man, both in stature and in spirit, he liked to abuse me. He liked to abuse me because before a bunch of people, he could make sport of me and he seemed like he was doing something because he's a little bitty guy and he was showing that he could just talk to me any way he wanted to. And after a year or so of this, and trying to love him through it, but making very little success. One day, I, I failed. And uh, he, he went into one of those... Uh, uh, huh? Yeah, I was trying not to say that. One of those porta cans. He, he went to relieve himself in a portable facility, right? And I grabbed the portable facility right after he went in, and I shook it. From side to side. It's like a baby's rattle. You know how the little beads just bounce around in there? That's what it sounded like except for the sloshing. And uh, then I ran back to the group of guys, right? And I sat down. They're all dying laughing. Well, this guy comes out with his Nomex suit in his hand and a uh, little dirty. Uh, and he says, who did this? You're getting fired. Who did this? Everybody points at me. He says, yeah, right. Who did this? That's a breastplate of righteousness. My behavior for a year, my behavior for a year had proven to everyone, at least in his mind, that I wasn't capable of doing that. That's to my credit. It's to my shame that I did actually do the thing that the breastplate was protecting me against. So how in a Christian's life is this weaponry supposed to work? It's a method of daily living. You have a belt of truth around your waist, something that holds your tools, that girds you, that makes you strong. That means if you tell the truth, this acts like armor for you. You don't ever have to be worried about being caught in deceit. You ever heard to be a liar, you have to have a great memory? You know? Belt of truth protects you from that. A shield of faith that extinguishes the darts from the enemy. What is that? What's that mean? That means when the little words come flying out of someone else's mouth that were inspired of the devil, that your faith blocks that. It extinguishes it. Somebody says, you're worthless. You're no good. I'm telling you, I've worked with a lot of people and you are the worst. Somebody says something like that to you. 
your shield of faith rises up. You hit that. It goes right through the strainer of God's Word. And you say, God says I'm more than a conqueror. I'm an overcomer in Him. He says He's made me confident. So I'm just going to let that dart fall right to the ground and it doesn't hurt you. That's how the armor is supposed to work in your life. Why on your feet would you have something that is called the preparation of the gospel for peace? Because the footsteps of a righteous man, the Bible says, are ordered by God. And you know what? They carry you into peace everywhere you go. I didn't read it in Deuteronomy, but did you know the next thing? After the priest stands up and says, God would like to go to war, guys. He wants to go to war and you don't have to be afraid even though the army's bigger. And then they go through the culling out process. If you want to go home and be with your wife, if you're scared, if you have a vineyard or a house, go ahead, go home. We only want those that are fully committed. You know what the next thing he said? When you get to the city that you're supposed to go to war with, make them an offer of peace. And if they won't take it and they begin to fight with you, then fight and here's what you do. Now, I'm not teaching about militant Christians. What I'm saying is your feet as a Christian soldier carry you into offers of peace. See, because I'm not really at war with David. Let's pretend for a moment that David's lost. I'm here bringing him an offer of peace with God. If David's hostile towards me, then I am at war with the spirit that is controlling David, not with David. Do you understand how that works? This allows you to stand in a group of people that are throwing stones at you, figuratively or literally, and love them and be violently opposed to what is empowering them. As a Christian soldier, you need to know these things. I don't know why I keep thinking of the drink chocolate soldier. (laughs) They're not related, not at all, unless you're a Christian soldier that looks like Matthew. Then you're both a chocolate soldier and a Christian soldier. (laughs) Okay, turn to, we're going to keep turning to the right, so turn to 1 Thessalonians. <laughs> Is it alright if I joke with you all and play around? I'm trying to keep you awake, you know? 1 Thessalonians 5, this is on page 1314. You remember I said there's a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness? Listen to how Paul says it in the book of Thessalonians. Verse 4, chapter 5, verse 4, But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief, the day of the Lord's coming. You are all sons of the light and sons of day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then, let us not be like the others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. He speaks about it in terms of being a part of the day, the army of light, or a part of night and darkness. And if you're in this army of light, then you have faith and love as a breastplate protecting you, loving. You remember I told you love drives out fear? Uh, all the reasons that you shouldn't have fear? You all remember what the three were last week? No, nobody does, huh? You should have love for your father that drives fear out from you. If that doesn't work, then... I don't remember number two now. You should have love for one another. That's probably not number two. But in any case, the third was if you cannot let your love for God overcome the problem, overcome the fear then your fear of God should cause you to do what it is that you won't want to. That was the third. second one evidently is not memorable. Yeah. So, guys, what I'm trying to say is as Christian soldiers in our ranks, in our divisions, marching with the ark in us and before us, we're going forth to do something. Second Corinthians 5, or 1 Corinthians 5.16 teaches us, 2 Corinthians 5.16 teaches us that we're making an offer to the world. What is that offer? Does anybody remember? It's 5.16. That they can be reconciled. That they can be reconciled. Do you remember what the battle was about in the very beginning? There was a rebellion here before man got here. And it predated man. Now we have one man who's declared to be God because the presence of God is in him. We are all being gathered to that one man so that us with him reconcile all of the creation back to God. That's the whole story. It starts with us, though. It starts with us being reconciled, the human race. 
Okay. Turn with me to 2 Timothy 2. You're going to keep going to the right. 2 Timothy 2 is on page 1324. Come on, you cannot ask for any more help than this. Page numbers, chapters, verses, and I put them all in left to right order. 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. Verse 1. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will be qualified to teach others. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first one to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Let's concentrate on the soldier part of that for a minute. He said, if you are a soldier, and you are, the us there was Paul and all of the people with Paul, you are a soldier like us, he said, then your concern should be, how do I please the commanding officer? Everything else is civilian affairs. See, if you're under orders and you're marching through the center of Houston as a part of a military structure, whatever that might be, are you concerned with what the crowd is saying or doing around you? No, you're absolutely concerned with staying in step with the rest of the soldiers who are staying in step with the person who's giving them the cadence, who's staying in step with the authority structure above them and above them and above them till you get to the top of the nation that is the commander-in-chief. Same thing's true in the body of Christ. Each of us are staying in step with one another, staying in step with the Spirit of God who's leading the army of God on earth. What pulls you out is when you get concerned with civilian affairs. What will I wear? What do I have to eat? Whether so-and-so likes me, doesn't like me. All of those things are civilian affairs. And that's why Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. It's got enough evil in itself uh, to take care of it. Don't, don't worry about that. Don't worry about what you wear. Don't worry about what you eat. He said, the sparrows, don't worry about those things. They have more than enough to eat. The lilies in the field are clothed better than Solomon was in all of his glory. And they don't worry about it. Those are all civilian affairs. When we talked about the conscription into Israel's army and the conscription into the body of Christ, you remember some things pulled people out, right? What was it? He's concerned somebody else might marry the girl they love. Concerned that somebody else might get the house that they build. Concerned that somebody else might take their vineyard. Or maybe they were just too fearful. Jesus taught about this. He taught about it in four kinds of soils. The seed all hit. The draft went out to four kinds of soils. The conscription notice went to all of those places. Some just ignored it. I'm too scared to go. I don't want to talk about it. Some received it and said, oh, I'll do it. But uh, because they, they had no grounding with the other soldiers, because they weren't really committed to the cause, they faded away quickly when the sun came up. Some did, planted, did well, until they became worried about their wives and what they'd eat, all of those things. Those were the weeds that grew up around it. Only one kind in four made it. That was the one that landed on good soil. Those parables that Jesus is teaching is about being wholeheartedly committed to the kingdom. And if you're not, this is a hard word, but if you're not, He really doesn't want you. Wow. That'd be hard, huh? Not be wanted by God? You've always heard preachers say God loves everybody. He wants all of you. He does if you'll call Him God and do what He says. But if you call Him God and don't do what He says, how are you any better than the lost? you remember why Deuteronomy said, if you were scared, don't go? you remember why? What was the reasoning? If you're scared, don't go. Loud? What? He said, I don't want you to discourage your other brothers. When people claim to be in the light and walk in darkness, they show that they don't have the truth in themselves. But the real problem is you cause all the soldiers around you to get out of step. You make it harder to hear from God. You make it difficult. You are sending a confusing message. So Jesus would that you would be hot or cold. Do those sound familiar words? What happens to those that are lukewarm? They get spewed out. In Revelation 17 
And in Revelation 19, we're not going to go there because I'm running out of time and I want to get to my war and acronym that I promised you. Y'all are singing Edwin Starr's song in your mind now, aren't you? Jesus comes in this, in this book, the revelation of the Christ. He comes and He is leading a heavenly army. In the book of Joel, Joel said, bring your army down. You find out we are a part of the army of the Lord. That's the only reason I was going to read you those. Now, it's clear that Christians are soldiers. It's clear that Israel and its divisions, its arrangement, its conscription notice, all of those things were to teach us something. Here's what I want you to know about war, though. The W in war is for worship. The A in war is for attitude. The R in war is for revelation. Any challenge that you meet at any time in your life can be solved with these three things. Consider yourself at war and then do what the anacronym says. If you're confronting a problem, if you're having a hard time, you worship. In Judges 1, verse 1, says, After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who will be the first to go up and fight against the Canaanites? He said, Send Judah first. Judah means praise. The first way you attack any problem that you have in your life is by praising God. And there's a reason for this. You know, to get the word war, each letter has to build on the other letter, right? If you rearrange those letters, it doesn't say war anymore. It doesn't mean anything. It's nonsensical. Well, worship, sending praise first, does something. It leads you into the right kind of attitude. Having worship lead you into the right kind of attitude causes you to be able to get revelation. Your marching orders. War. On this worship note, real quick, turn to 2 Kings 17. We're going to be done in about 10 minutes. I'm not telling you that because I want to be done. I want you to hang on, pay attention, give it your very best here. Kings can be found in the 400s. Second uh, Kings is on page 429 in your Bible. Now, any time we've read something out of the Old Testament, understand these things were written down for our benefit. These people's lives served us in that they serve as examples. They themselves are not perfect. They're not perfect examples, but they teach you something. With that in mind, verse 24 of chapter 17, "...the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kuthas, Ava, Hamas, and Sephirim." <laughs> That's a horrible butcher. Uh, and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. When they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord. So He sent lions among them, and they killed some of the people. Why did the lions come? They did not worship. It was reported to the king of Assyria, the people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of the country requires. He has sent lions among them which are killing them off because the people do not know what He requires. Two problems. They're not worshiping and there's not worshiping because they don't know what the God of the land requires. The king of Assyria gave this order. Have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and to teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to... Worship the Lord. Turn with me to 1 Peter. In 1 Peter, he picks up on this idea. 1 Peter is on page 1351. Starting in the latter half of verse 5. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that He may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. And the God of all grace who has called you to us or drafted you to His eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will Himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. 
To Him be the power forever and ever. When you are learning to worship, understand there are powers that will resist you. And if you don't know what the God of the land requires, He will trick you. The very first man who ever sinned on the earth fell to this power of the lion because he was tricked about what God did and didn't want. Did God really say? You know, that's why I'm telling you before we started today, the right way to worship, the right kind of carefree attitude, the letting go of your pride and just entering into worship, you're less likely to be listening to the devil's voice at that point. If you resist him, if you stand firm in worship, it will lead you to the right kind of attitude. For attitude, let's turn back to Philippians here real quick. Everybody ought to know this. I quote this an awful lot. Philippians on page 1305, chapter 2, verse 4. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but to the interest of others. When you enter into worship, you are closer in communion with God. You feel His presence. His Spirit is around you. It's working through you. This allows the ark that is within you to begin to be felt by you. It allows you to see the ark that has gone ahead of you, God's presence. Worship does that. And the result of that is it creates in you the right kind of attitude, which is to look to the interest of others and not yourself. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. My God, Christians, if we could just take that attitude... The attitude that you're nothing, you're just a servant of God, it is so hard to offend somebody who thinks uh, very little about their own needs and their own self. If I tell you I think that you're a pig, that you're a worthless human being, and you're dead to self in this way, you think, well, whatever I am, I'm God's servant. And you just smile and you move on. It doesn't even make a dent because you're not worried about your status and your reputation. You're willing to lay it aside to do something, to be obedient And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Why does he say it that way? He became obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Of all the things to be obedient to, death has got to be the hardest. But then of all the kind of deaths that a Jew could die, the worst death a Jew could die would be death on a cross. Because this said to the world, he's cursed by God. How hard would that be to be obedient to? To be hung on a cross according to the Levitical law meant you were cursed by God. Now, we understand that He took that curse for us. But you know who didn't understand that? Every human being who was standing there looking at Him. Did that require Him to empty Himself of His will? That's why He was so pressed in the garden. That's why He was so in such agony in the garden said, Not my will, but yours be done. This was the hardest thing that you could have asked Him to do. In our lives, surely you've not been asked to resist even to the point of shedding blood or you wouldn't be here. What do you have to do? You have to give up the right to be right. You have to quit thinking so highly of yourself. You have to trust God for your provision, not worry what happens if somebody else doesn't think of you. Those kind of things. If you can't pass those, don't think you'd pass the prison camp kind of thing. You wouldn't. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His purpose. Do everything... Do everything. If I say everything, what does that leave out? Nothing. Everything doesn't leave room for you to work anything into it. You know? If I say do everything, we're talking about everything. Do everything without... Y'all take out your black highlighters and take it to this word. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the Word 
of life. Paul goes on to say he's given up his very life being poured out like a drink offering. The first thing that you need to do is learn to worship. That will put you in a frame of reference where you can have the right attitude. Having the right attitude and being worshipful will lead you into Revelation. 1 Peter 4 and Ephesians 4 both teach about attitude. I'm running out of time, so suffice it to say that if you worship, it fosters a Christ-like attitude in you. That Christ-like attitude is always the needs of others, always God's will before your own. And that leads you to Revelation. Turn with me to Galatians. From Philippians, you'll go backwards to Galatians. In the first chapter and 11th verse, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preach is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Christ Jesus. Later in Galatians, he says he went to Jerusalem in response to this revelation. We see Paul talking many times about this revelation, the revelation of the gospel, the revelation of the mystery, kept hidden in edges past, but now revealed. Paul had a lifestyle of worship. He had an attitude that caused him to put everybody else's needs before his own. He said, I could wish to die. He said, I, wish, I, I could wish to go on and be with Jesus. That'd be gain. But for your benefit, church, I'm going to stay here because it's better for me to stay with you. The guy wrote these books from prison. Well, why did he do that? Because he understood he was a soldier. He's the one that gave us those analogies of soldier. And his worship had led him into an attitude that put us first and it had brought him revelation. See, the thing that you want to do anytime you face a problem is submit to God through worship. Take up the right kind of attitude and then He can speak to you what the marching orders are. John, he's the only apostle that did not die uh, from persecutions. He died of old age. They tried to kill him quite a few times. Does anybody remember where he finished out his life at? Patmos. Uh, Patmos with a T. It, uh, I think with a T. He was on a Roman prison camp. He was in a, uh, an island that was a Roman prison camp making idols. That's what they forced him to do. They thought that would be fun for him since he loved God and hated idols. John was given possibly the biggest revelation that anybody has ever received. Do you remember what it was? Turn to the last book of your Bible. You know, the end of the Bible tells us how things finish up, how this rebellion gets squelched some of the details of the battle plan. You know how we got it. A man that had a worshipful heart and a right attitude towards God received the revelation. Chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. See, if you want to know what God requires of you, if you want to know what you're supposed to do next in your life, if you want to know what it is that pleases your commanding officer, any of those things, it starts with worship, having the right attitude, and then receiving revelation. Our church is founded on this fact. Despite what the Catholics tell you, our church is founded on this one thing. Jesus said, Who do men say that I am? Peter stands up and says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Peter, for this was not given to you by men. You remember Paul said, I didn't receive my revelation from men. But it was revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven. You're a rock. On this rock I'm going to build my church. Now I understand that's been confused, but it is built upon this fact. Each one of us, though we're organized into divisions, though we have apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, and evangelists, each one of us, if we have a worshipful heart and the right attitude, and receive marching orders directly from the king. See, in all kinds of warfare, the goal is to take out the leadership of an army and the people will scatter. They, they won't be able to organize themselves. You cut the head off the snake and the snake dies. Christians are different. The devil can isolate you. He can put you in a prison and you never see another human being, but you can be in perfect contact with your commander-in-chief. Paul tells you over and over and over in Ephesians, pray. Pray on all occasions. Pray in the Spirit. Pray with all kinds of prayers. 
This is the equivalent of calling in an air attack. You're talking to the king about the situations on the earth and he is responding with the real air force, if you will. Christians are engaged in warfare at all times. And if you remember to have a worshipful heart, the right attitude, and look for revelation from God, you will always do what Galatians tells us. Galatians 5.25 says, Since then we live by the Spirit, let us stay in step with the Spirit. Soldiers learn in boot camp how to step in time with everyone else. Discord is punished. It's punished. In the kingdom, there's nothing but mercy. But discord causes problems. We are all in the process of learning how to step when God says step. It comes from being submitted to Him in worship and having a right attitude. And then you get orders from Him that tell you what to do. Most of you would do what God wanted you if you just knew beyond any shadow of a doubt it's what He wanted. Submit yourself to Him in every way through worship and in the right attitude. He will make His will clear to you. Paul was clear. You know why he was clear? Jesus spoke to him. The apostles were clear because Jesus spoke to them. My life changed when Jesus spoke to me. The direction in your life will be clear as you submit before God and ask for His marching orders for you. He'll give them. I promise He'll give them because He's drafted you for this purpose. And the end result will be He will have a church that is called Israel, the prince with God. And I don't use those terms exclusively. They mean the same thing as far as I'm concerned. Israel of God, the prince with God, will be made up of a church of many nationalities, chief among which is Israeli. This entity will be perfectly submitted to God. And through that perfectly submitted entity, He will put down all rebellion on the planet. And what will be left? is a creation that is in perfect submission to Him. As saints, soldiers, you have a battle plan. You have a commanding officer. You have the ability to communicate with all soldiers and your commanding officer. You have a mission, a purpose. You want to know what a purpose-driven life is? This is it. You need to stand up, realize your high calling in Christ to act like soldiers not concern yourself with civilian affairs. Find out what pleases your commanding officer and do it. What an awesome thing. Tomorrow you're going to see people honor veterans in all kind of wars. That is a fantastic sacrifice and I don't diminish it at all. But in my mind, the heroes are the Poles. The, the men and women that have gone before us in the fight, fighting in an army that couldn't be seen for a kingdom that nobody can sign up for, that you have to be called spiritually to. Fighting for an eternal city that's not yet been revealed or seen. Those are heroes. Everything else is just lanyard as parts, pieces of the puzzle working towards that one end. I'm going to submit to God now so that I'm not forced to submit to God later. Because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess how good it is to find the, day, the Lord on the day of salvation. Because it would be a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Y'all stand up. Let's pray.